0: Hey, Pronouncers. Welcome back to the podcast. We've got a really special episode a little bit later, but we've got a pretty exciting pre-show here. 20-minute pre-show. I'm boxing it in a little bit more this time because I feel like this can go off into another hour and then it's a little bit long. And Are so, we, anyway, we
1: entertaining, Bruce?
0: We, you I guys
2: think are. you just wanted to Is it because cut we give you p- a hard time about what printing things you don't know? Is that why Sport you're cutting fountain? it short? Can yeah. we
1: start with that today?
2: Yeah, let's start Split with talking? the Beat Up, beat up Bruce
1: first, first five. On this new part of um, email podcasts <laughs> at Printavo, if you'd like to ask Bruce a technical question about printing, he will do so his best to, to answer it live um, as best he can, and we will critique in you know, Olympics. We'll give you a score. Um, but you got to send it straight to
2: me or Steven so Bruce doesn't know about it and have time to do the research first.
0: Matt so, at Printavo.com. There you go. Or Stephen at Campus.inc.com.
1: Yep. So, Bruce, <laughs> um, what are we going to talk about today?
0: Okay. I, I'm going to just jump in real quick with the... Uh, with I got two things, actually, that I want to talk about. Number one, um, obviously, if you haven't your, gotten your tickets, uh, they are almost sold out for Print Housewives October 22nd, 23rd. Really exciting this year, I hope. We don't have any of this Delta problems just with regulations and things changing, but we're watching it, Um, but you can reserve it. Of course, you can always cancel your room or whatever if, if worst case, worst comes to worst. But the speakers are stacked, they're done. We're gonna start announcing them later in the week. I don't know when this is gonna come out, but you guys will see it. And so it's actually really diverse. It's the most diverse speaker set outside the industry and inside the industry. Super pumped about that. All right. First thing is ask anything. You guys can write in podcast at com to be able to ask any sort of problem that you are currently having. This one comes from Tracy Stearns out of Running Threads. Woo! Tracy. Hey Tracy. This is uh Matt's actually Max uh, Matt's account. Arkansas. She wrote in a really good question, and Farag, I, I feel like this is almost directed towards you. Sorry, Matt. She says, uh, I'd be interested in hearing about different pricing structures for stores. And fundraising stores, short-term stores, AKA Greek. I've been doing pricing by total quantity sold, but really want to get a set amount made slash order for the group. Like $5 a shirt that may go up to eight if they sell more. Um, just how do I do pricing? How do I price? And it sounds like it's a really more of a getting started an intro to pricing, less of how complex you've gotten with, you know, your diverse clientele. That's a, that's a thick question.
1: It's got a lot, a lot of meat on the bones. Um, (laughs) so I've actually simplified our pricing quite a bit when it comes to online stores and it all comes down to risk. When you build an online store, you assume all the risk. You are essentially setting up a retail store for your clientele. So bulk pricing does not exist, period. Um, And essentially, when we build an online store, now we don't charge for online stores. Um, We build them for free. We have no issues with that. Um, But there is an upfront, basically, like I let them all know, hey, uh, you you need to sell 24 pieces for the store to go through. Um, you can only have uh, one design on three products. So you can take a design, put it on a long sleeve, a T-shirt, and a hoodie, and you have to sell at least 24 of those. And I'm going to make the prices. And essentially what I tell them is when you build an online store, you're going direct to consumer. So the parent that's checking out for their kid, they're looking at a shirt and saying, okay, it's $15, 16 $17. It doesn't matter all that much. And so because you're giving them a retail experience, you're charging retail pricing. On the flip side of that, there's also a ton of work on the backside of the store as far as um, collapsing it, bagging and tagging it, and the customer service involved if something happens. Because you are going direct to consumer, you are responsible for every shirt making sure that it makes it to every single customer. And it's on you if you don't successfully do that. And so um, with that being said, that is why I dictate prices and why I charge quite a bit um, when I do them. Now, if a customer will say, well, I think we're going to order 100, I tell them, do it the first time. And if you do that a couple times, we'll knock your pricing down. Um, but we don't, we don't let them have bulk quantity pricing when it comes to online store. There's just too much risk involved. That's my answer. Now, no, are that, you splitting that, that pricing height? at all? Are you like, yeah. giving them a portion of that? So if they want to fundraise or fundraise, that's totally on them. So if I tell them, hey, the shirts are going to be 15 bucks, they can say, put them at 20 and they can make five bucks a shirt. That's their business, not mine. Only thing I take is a transaction fee, um, just because you don't want to lose money on credit card fees. Um, But that's completely on them. Now, on stores that that are really good, so clients that are running them once a month, Um, sometimes I'll incentivize them and say, Hey guys, if you're able to sell 400 pieces, I'll bump this up a couple bucks a shirt to make you guys more money. And you'll kind of backwards incentivize them. But I only have a few that I really do that with because they're trained on my system. So, um, short and long of it, online stores are a profit center. Um, but you have to treat them like that and sell them like a premium service. It is not a Dunkin' Donuts value meal thing you're selling. It is a premium, premium, premium experience.
0: Gosh, damn. We're never getting a Dunkin' Donuts sponsorship now. Dang it. <laughs> Chris so anyways. That's fine. How do you handle the upcharges? The up because I remember you always talked about we individually bag regardless of it being a pickup or delivery. Uh, is it? a dollar, is it $2, like, what, what are these add-ons?
1: They're not add-ons, they're just retail pricing. Like, so it's in included the, with everything? It's included, we do not give the option, bagging and tagging is, you must do it. Because I'm not going to assume that the group organizer knows how to bag and tag. Okay, shops across the country are messaging us saying, how do you bag and tag? Like it's a very, you, you have to do it and be very careful about it. If I give it to a parent to do, They're going to call me back and say, we're short two smalls. Well, I'm going to burn three more screens to get them two more shirts, and that's going to take two hours. And that's what it would have taken to bag and tag the order. So we know that we're going to bag and tag it perfectly with our system. And I've got a YouTube video out there on how to bag and tag perfectly. And when we do that, we don't get any calls or issues. um, And we, we almost train our customers to know that's our style. So if you get an online store, it's going to be bagged and tagged um and that's the name of the game
0: okay where where can people start though with the price so is it like a a 12 shirt order with finishing and everything is that a good starting place and then go Mm -hmm. up from there Mm -hmm.
1: what what you would sell 12 shirts at okay and the other thing i say is if a customer tells you how many they think are going to sell divide that number in half Yeah, they have no idea. Everyone thinks they have the best
2: idea that they're the best salespeople. And then unfortunately, it's not always the case. The hard part, too, is if you're setting that standard of saying like, hey, you must sell 12, you must sell 24, and they don't hit that number. You're now having to go in and say, okay, refund, refund, refund. And you have to either charge them for the credit card fees that have happened. Right. So now you're leaving a bad experience for that that user. Right. Your customer. So Stephen has a lot of things that I've actually taken taken and kind of stolen those ideas from of letting them know uh, out front, okay, you must sell these minimums, and then checking in a couple days before the store ends with a reminder, you are under what you need, or hey, you're golden, keep doing what you're doing, no worries, but giving them enough time to go, okay, I'm six shorts, six shirts short. Let me go ahead and just, I'll just go buy those six shirts to make sure that goes through, whatever the case might be. But making sure you have constant communication, which again, you're having to put a lot of work into this to be successful. If you're not charging for that time as well, well, now you're not making money doing other tasks you can be doing. So I think Stephen's exactly right. You have to be charging at that
1: real price to be delivering this whole experience. The, the other thing that I'm doing is I'm co-marketing. So I am the marketing expert per se in the situation and I'm asking them how they're delivering the message to their, their customers. If they're just going to post it on Facebook once, big red flag. I'm asking for an email list and saying, are you guys emailing this out? If you're going to be emailing it out, it's going to be over 10 days. You need to send one on the first day, middle day and last day and I'm using Printavo statuses to basically say your store is doing well or your store hasn't mit- hit minimums. The other thing that we started doing is a store approval. So um, with unlimited automations and approvals, you can essentially build everything out on a Printavo quote, put in the customer notes, you know things about the store, create a message that says, these are the 10 rules of the store and make sure they hit approve. Once they hit approve, we build that store instantly. So a lot of customer education through the process um so, so that we a, avoid you know those problems that you talked about Matt
0: there's a lot of setup i mean you're listing off just some of the things here but do you charge for setup i've heard some people do some sort of fee or or that's the part of the baked in premium per item that it's you it's hope to make later
1: we we say like frictionless sales right how do we get a product to a store to a customer as quickly as possible like cutting through butter And if we can avoid as much friction, that's fine, as long as we do a good job educating our customer. So if a customer has failed on their first store, we're probably not going to build them another one without having a conversation. Um, But, you know, the other rule we say is if a store fails, we refund it instantly. We don't extend it. We don't allow them to do anything with it. It's canceled. And all of the customers will get a message saying, um, please talk to your group organizer. if." if you'd like to try this order
0: again, it's not our problem. Got so, it. And yep. while we're on this topic, late orders, and this comes up a lot too. People, mm-hmm. the store closes. It's what closed. if it's a you know, I don't know, a very loyal customer, someone that spent a lot of money. I mean, we've Are had like park districts, like
2: park district kids, where it's like the next day, and if we haven't hit press, if if it's if it's still before it's hit press, I'll pass and protect the store turn it back on and say, you got like 20 minutes, get it in there. We'll get that order through. If I, if I've already copied it over to invoice and it's already hit press, it's, it's too late. It's, it's done. That's not on me. That's where, again, it's on the group organizer to make sure that they're, they're getting everything they need.
1: Yeah. What we do is we say the store closes Sunday at midnight, but Milo will actually close them like Monday at 10 AM to let any trickle come through. Um, and if someone will message us in that time, it's Milo's call. 95% of the time she says no just because it 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 damages the person that that bought first and that's what i tell the group is when i extend a store by one hour it actually like disincentivizes buying early and so you're rewarding the person that procrastinated and and you're delaying you know potentially delaying the order to the person that bought day one so it's not fair and um we're pretty strong about it and we don't really stray from it because it's wrong
2: (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> one thing, one thing that I've also done that I'd recommend for for folks that are trying to get into more merch stores and this merch store approval uh, that Stephen talked about, I also stole a concept from him. Very, very big, big help. But one thing I've done is I've actually created a, uh, a a template status. So I've got Printavo template, and so when I look for that status, I find a couple a couple just like fake orders. I have myself set as the customer, but in the customer notes, I've got exactly what my expectations are for that merch store laid out with literal underscore areas where I have to fill in the blank data, then go ahead and make the quote and send it over, right? So every time I'm actually creating this merch quote, I don't have to go through and type out or go find and copy and paste that data I want to have in the customer notes section. It's already there. I just fill in the blanks and shoot it out. I've actually started doing that for other, other printable uses too, but that's a big help when it comes to... Quickly getting a uh, merch approval out to a customer.
1: I love this topic. I could talk about merch all day.
0: <laughs> I know. That's why I, I literally, this is actually, gonna be, uh, I was in
1: the shower this morning thinking about it. About and merch. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about this morning, and uh, I was like, <laughs> "Why is merch so great? Because merch is your best marketing tool. Merch, merch, like exponentially, like creates a larger reach for your shop. So if you want to oh, market more, the,
0: the customer emails."
1: it's exponential yeah literally like you go from one to 20 per order like 20x on terms of like leads and prospecting and getting contacts and stuff you could not, not enough shops a- do that
2: though i i talk to shops all the time at least two three a week where they'll have a, a store they successful they'll have like a hundred sales i'm like okay have you retargeted Like, well, what do you mean? I'm like you have to go export your this list of people who purchased. You have their emails. You should be reaching out to them, emailing them, thanking them for their purchase of the store, adding them to your your weekly newsletter, asking them if they need any other merch needs. Retarget that audience. And people like,
1: Oh, I didn't think of that. I mean, even if you don't and you just insert a stuffer in every bag, you're still marketing, you're still Mm -hmm. you're still doing something. But it's literally exponential. And people always ask, like, what's the best way to market or get more customers? Merch stores literally 20 to one as far as like b2b to and and you can now convert those merch customers into b2b customers happens all the time don't snooze on it
0: (laughs) that's awesome yeah um that's super interesting have have you ever taken that to any facebook advertising or targeting or is that like too much it's easier for the low-hanging fruit on the flyers and email
1: we spend very little on facebook ads unless we're running a retail brand like you know jute mode kind of does and john amato is helping us but we don't do a lot of it we 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 are collecting so many good emails we just rely on email marketing sure um, and it's yeah.
0: basically free hmm got it um all right I got the timer on here. We got three minutes left. I got an interesting story I wanted to share with you guys, actually. Was that the second uh, question? Wasn't
2: there two questions, though? There was a two-parter. I think that was the first part you asked. Was that both
0: parts? No, that, that was it. Okay. I mean, we went into like three, four topics there. But All right. Matt wants another question. Guys, can you guys go ahead and write Matt a question? Podcaster it's got to be technical. Pantavo. Like, talk about Read like Matt.
1: M-
2: mesh. He likes talking about <laughs> mesh. <laughs> mesh or seps or... Anything counts.
0: All right, we'll get you a good question, Matt. I'll find you. I'll, All I'll right, ask thanks. around.
1: He wants to get real nerdy about some additives. I can I can talk um, about that. Like you can talk about merch. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Have you guys heard of a guy named Lawrence Herbert?
2: I want to. That's a great name. I do not know that person though.
0: Okay. So obviously everybody's heard of the Pantone book. He is the guy that invented the Pantone book. And this is a little uh, uh, quick aside here to wrap up as an interesting story. But basically, he owned a printing company in the 1960s and he was uh, doing a lot of painting. And so he got so frustrated with all the different colors that were so similar. And of course, people were like, you know, I want the blue, I want the red, right? And of course, that can mean anything. And so what he did was he created a standard that he gave out to his customers, kind of like what you have, Steven, on the wall, like that poster that's like, here's our standard- Swatch card. Swatch card. Yes. 20 colors, whatever. And he gave it to every single vendor that he could find. Um, and that's what he called the Pantone book, uh, which of course continued to grow over the next 50, 60 years. Um, to a point where you know every company, even Ben and Jerry's, uses it for for their brownie colors and ice cream and uh, for QA testing, and it's actually a hundred million dollar business a year of selling books. Yeah, it's the books two hundred
2: bucks a book. That's why
0: <laughs> exactly. And of course, they update it constantly too with all the new colors. But I think the the whole story goes back into. Um, how they created their own standard that became just a, an international, you know, well, standard, right? And and just how long that actually took. I mean, that was probably forty plus years of continually handing out that book. And I'm sure there's others that have have tried to do this too. But uh, I found that just background very fascinating. I, n- I never knew that was such a large business. Obviously, that book is so expensive, but. Um, pretty cool. I heard it on uh, a separate podcast, actually.
1: Do you think he yeah. likes hex codes? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think he's very anti-hex code. Lawrence Herbert is a very old gentleman. You can uh, search yeah, for him. Yeah, I was just on the Google. I'm, I'm, I'm going
2: to become friends with Lawrence Herbert. His name, his name <laughs> and his background are all I need. We're going to become but besties. It's just
0: interesting on the standards of fixing their problems. And granted, you know, obviously, I'm sure they don't paint or anything anymore. And, and this is their pure business. But... Um, but of, of having to standardize and fix their problems, it just kind of reminded me of the two-second lean and constantly thinking about how, how do we how do we one percent improve what we're doing.
2: Yeah, I have. So I, I I read the book you sent me, by the way, and then I bought the audio book and I've been re-listening to the book. Which one? I, I the two-second lean. It I like it. He gets a little bit too like. When he brings it home and he's talking about like his his making his coffee or his tea in the morning, I'm just like, all right, the, mm, I'm, you, you didn't have to do any of that, in my opinion. Like the work, stuff at work all makes sense, and I love it. Like the the wheels, the the windex, like all that stuff. Matt, but when maybe he, when if he you takes home,
1: your bathtub, mm, maybe if right? you labeled your bathtub with a fill line, you wouldn't have
0: floods. <laughs> <laughs> that that cut deep. If you guys Ouch. Didn't too to real, the too real. Last week's episode, um, <laughs> Matt had a severe waterfall and uh, waterfall feature coming from his ceiling. A little, little unintentional everything.
2: water feature is not necessarily a bad thing. And now we've got a nice big open aired ceiling with it just cut open. You can see the pipe, so now it's easier to get to. I just gotta put some new drywall up at some point.
0: All right, guys, we're jumping in. We're really excited to bring on Tom Round from Envision Teas. He's got so much to talk about. Thank you guys for joining the pre show. Take a listen. All right, guys, welcome back to the podcast. We've got Tom Round from Envision Teas, from 1 800 T shirts, from uh, real estate stuff. Do you have a real estate company name, Tom?
3: Um, yeah, just Round Real Estate. And then the new one is Fast Food Landlord.
0: Round Real Estate. Fast food landlord. Right, all this time, Bruce. That was not. Um,
1: that was that was not the intro we needed.
0: Hold on one second. I...
1: So I gonna I was this. talking to Bruce on Sunday, Tom, and I'm like, I think if we could give an award to someone for the most interesting screen printer man of the year, it would be Tom Rowan. So that's what I'm awarding you today. Why is that? Because. I don't think there's something you don't do, and I'm very much, like, I think there's a twin, or there's got to be, like, 10 of you, but I just see you running, like, 100-mile trail runs, buying Arby's, 1-800 t-shirts, running breweries, and a print shop, and you, a uh, Shirt Lab, and you still manage to, like, answer us on Facebook when we're like, hey, can you look into this order for us? <laughs> and, and I'm just, like, there's got to be a clone or something but uh i'm like how the heck do you do this all and
0: uh that is a great intro can we that start with that w- you know tom- we're gonna use that one actually chris just use that one tom how do you how can you show us your
1: clones please like you
3: can yes in um, the room so <laughs> one of the one of the secret weapons is my wife um she keeps me in line and kind of keeps everything together but you know part of it when i'm running and training for these 100 mile races i typically wake up about 5 a.m and i'll run anywhere from 10 to 20 miles a day and during that time i basically like go through in my head clear out like everything that's like junk and then get like really focused on what needs to be done that day and then um just have an amazing team so Everything from the uh, sales department to production and to the multiple businesses. Um, we've got great team members that, um, you know, I, I tr- my hardest part, the hardest part I think I have is taking my ideas and everything that's going on here and projecting it out to the rest of the team um, and letting them kind of run with it. So I'm big on just like once I get those ideas out and whatever the game plan is. To them letting them run and not micromanaging and not like being too hands on on like everything
1: else so like I was reading about Elon Musk and how he plans his week out between Tesla boring Company, SpaceX. how do you budget out because I mean you you do a ton of different things
3: how how do you like what's a what's a week in the life of Tom Rowan like um I need to work on that. (laughs) So there's not less necessarily like a time budget for each area. Um, it's more of just like throughout the day, um, I might be pulled into several different directions. So throughout the day I'm wearing a lot of different hats. Um, and some days it's different than others. Kind of just depends like what has higher priorities or what maybe has a bigger fire that we have to put out
0: is the thought about diversification from a business side or is it like, first of all, super hats off because as Steven said, I can't imagine running a separate business right now. Um, and maybe that's just a testament to not having all of the different management pieces. Maybe that that's needed to do that. But, uh, you know, what is the thought process around? Is it like, I just want more streams of revenue. Or I just want to diversify from apparel. I mean, there's a lot here.
3: Um, I think like the core of it is I'm a creator and I like creating different experiences. I like creating different things and it keeps my mind busy because I'm not like, on the same area all the time I'm looking at because they're like completely different markets, completely different customer bases. Like every part of these businesses are different. So, um, you know, whether it's a brewery or the limo company or the real estate, um, there's a the limo company event side of things,
0: Hold on. Um, or just
3: like the running, like they're all different. There's a limo company. We didn't. Yeah. We don't that, know. About that's that that actually one. a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> Who's driving?
3: Not me. So <laughs> the funniest part about that is um, my driving record, I am not allowed to actually drive any of the limos um, because of insurance reasons. So uh, that's
1: the T- best part about bloody. it. Too many red light like, tickets. This guy
0: runs a hundred miles. He has no business driving a limousine. Yeah. Like, I'll meet you guys the there. So
1: <laughs> like shops and, and people listening to this are always like, you know saying like i'm losing my mind running my shop it's like putting out fires one after the other talk about how you i mean you obviously have an amazing team around you and i think that's that's a testament to being having the freedom to do whatever you want what was it like assembling that team because until you can automate one thing you can't really go to the next without losing your mind do you have like you know assistants that are working around you how much time are you spent like training people? Like talk to us about your people, like around you. Cause I think that's, that's huge.
3: Yeah. So that's a work in progress. We're constantly, um, you know, we've had some turnover, so, you know, we're constantly filling some holes and, um, looking at better ways to train, um, implement systems and processes and stuff like that. And that's like, not, I'm, like more visionary side. So that isn't even like my process of thinking like, okay, how can we get all these steps down and stuff like that? Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's hard to explain, but you know, once, once you get like some momentum going, then it makes it a little bit easier, but it's still a challenge. Like there's, there's not a day goes by that we're not either putting out a fire, or trying to plug a hole. Um, or just, you know, trying to improve something that we're currently doing. So yeah, I'm definitely not out of the weeds yet. I mean, there's still a lot of days where I might be jumping back on a press and printing. Um, but while I'm printing, um, I might be, you know, watching a webinar or I might be, you know, knocking out some phone calls, uh, while I'm printing. So still, still in the weeds, still doing a lot of hands on stuff. Um, but at the same time, like have a lot of people, you know, handling things too.
0: But like, let's say somebody did want to start something else, um, a brewing company, for example. Do you have a partner that's also helping to do a lot more of the operational aspects yeah, there? So,
3: yeah. So with the brewery, um, I've got an amazing partner, um, Jeff, and he handles. He's managing partner handles all the day to day. We've got a great taproom manager. Our brewers are absolutely phenomenal. So you know, I give them like one hundred percent of the credit there. Um, I'm very hands off, uh, on the brewery operation, help out mm-hmm. with, you know, some marketing PR, um, tasting, you know, matching stuff up with some of the relationships I already have. But for the most part, like, um, they've, they're just amazing team down there.
0: Is it so- safe to say that you are more of an investor than in a lot of these different areas and, and Envision Tees helps fund that?
3: Yeah, I would definitely say, yeah, in a lot of areas, it's more of an investor and advisor role um, than like hands on on the day to day in some of these.
1: Yeah, because I I mean, you would call yourself like a serial entrepreneur, right? Whether it's fast food or a limo company or a brewery, you know, Bruce and I keep talking about this traction book and there's the visionaries and the integrators. Is that traction, Bruce? I I think I guess like you it sounds like what i'm hearing is like you surround yourself by a lot of really good implementation and integrators and you can be the visionary and i think when you have to do both it's like a handcuffed experience it's not not something that you're able to do and take to fruition i guess like let's talk about you know like something like uh like the limo company is that something where you're like i saw it as an opportunity it's profitable it's lucrative you put it in motion put someone on it and they run with it
3: like how does that work yeah, 100%, so it was something I saw as an opportunity. Um, a friend of mine, he was actually looking at the same opportunity. I called him up and I was like, hey, I've got this idea. He's like, holy crap, I've actually been looking at the exact same thing. Um, so he's running everything 100%. Um, basically, I'm there uh, as you know, advising, um, you know, lending marketing expertise, uh, marketing, uh putting connections together of clients for the company and things like that so you know on the day-to-day um aaron's running everything and i'm just there to help out and you know help point it in the right direction wow so then like
1: from a finance standpoint you know um i don't see you flying around in your jet yet but are you very much on the ground with the finance side of things like pushing numbers looking at reports like do you have a strong like are you a strong strong in accounting because i feel like a lot of what you're these are big number games that you're playing
3: you know um i am not very strong on accounting especially like on the um unlike a lot of the the like ground level stuff but at a high level like i can look at stuff Say, all right, this is good. This will work. Um, Especially on the real estate side of things, um, I've got that down really well. And then, you know, just looking at it and seeing that it makes sense and everything else, and then identifying either like some weak points or pain points or like areas that we have to switch or adjust. But as far as like diving into the numbers and getting real deep on them, that is definitely not my strong suit. Gotcha. So do you have like a a board of advisors or just like someone?
1: in your life that's like crazy good at it that you just lean on or what? Yeah. Do you want to share them? <laughs> yeah,
3: I mean, it's basically our account, our accountant um, and bookkeeper. So, but we are looking now, you know, as there's multiple things going on and as everything continues to grow, um, adding a board of advisors, um, that is multifaceted. So it's with, you know, someone like, someone with a banking relationship, someone on the accounting side of things, someone with more of a financial analysis, things like that, where um, as a small business, like we can't, afford, we can't afford to hire all those people on our team. But if they can take a high level look at stuff on a quarterly basis um, as an advisor, that would help a ton.
0: Which, Tom, which business is most profitable? Feel free to
3: limos, of course. Um, I'm going to, party but bus. like what
0: and maybe I guess just maybe kidding. there's like a, a percentage aspect, and there's just total uh, profits, which maybe envisioned because that seems to funnel the rest of it. But you know, are there any interesting hidden gems here?
3: Yeah, the um, I think all of them are more profitable than the T-shirt business. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, there we have it, folks.
3: <laughs> so. I mean, they all vary so much because it it varies from products and services, you know. So, like the limo company is a service. Like, we're not the overheads just completely different. Um, The brewery, you know, is different too because you got the tap room and we're going full retail. We're not really wholesaling out um, as much to other uh, bars and restaurants and like grocery stores and stuff like that. So, we're getting the full margin. Um and there's just so many moving parts with the t shirt business. So I think I feel like on t shirt business I met um Perry Marshall, the king of eighty twenty, and he basically said like if you really dove into the numbers on your t shirt business, there's probably thirty percent of the stuff that you're sending out the door you're probably losing money on. Another twenty percent you're maybe breaking even on, and then um another 30% you're making low money and your top 20% is like where you're actually making some money. Um, so he's like, if you can cut off the bottom 50%, just focus on that top 50. Um, that's where you become super profitable in the t-shirt business. So we're looking at that and saying, all right, I mean, we all know orders like we do. And it's like, Holy crap. I don't think I made any money on that order. All right. I lost money. I always say like, we just paid that customer basically to, to do this order. Amen. And we heard, like, Mark Kudre talk about that. Um,
1: and uh, I was actually at a shop yesterday, um, and uh, the guys at Rowboat gave all of our students a tour because they just do cooler stuff than us. And, I mean, their runs are massive, and they were showing us sim process, eight-color sim process, and 1,000, 2,000-piece runs. And we were out to dinner after, and they asked me, like, Stephen, can we do that? And I'm, like, trying to get it through their heads that, you know, an eight-color sim process on their 75 fraternity shirts just doesn't pay the bills unless you charge $35 a shirt. And I think we want to do all the coolest things in our industry, but at scale, you can't. You just, I mean, you you physically can't. Tom, you've bought out some shops, right? Like, I think you've had a bunch of acquisitions. I We've been kind of watching in our industry shops shuttering lately, some big shops closing, small shops closing. Talk to us about that because you kind of like as you grew in vision, you ate up other shops along the way. Talk to us about the acquisition process, because I think that's super interesting.
3: OK, so we've acquired six other shops in the last seven years, and they've ranged in size from doing $400,000 in revenue to $2 million in revenue. And it's a lot of different moving parts, a lot of different scenarios. People are always ask, like, what, what are things you've learned? I've learned a lot. Um, of the good, the bad, and the ugly with um, acquisitions. I think the biggest thing I can share on those is you want two definite things to align. One, the equipment. If there's equipment involved, if you have all m and presses and the shop you're acquiring has anything but M&R, then like that just doesn't align and you're gonna up with a mess. Same goes on the embroidery machines if they have Baradun or Tajima. Um, it, you need those things to align or like you're just going to end up selling that equipment at whatever the, you know, used price is and getting that out of the way. So that's just like a lot extra. So you want the equipment to align in with what you're currently doing. The other thing is you want the customer base to align with what you're currently doing unless you're trying to like get into a whole new market. So the ones we found that worked out really well are. The other owners that have the same values and beliefs that we do, because a lot of times the client base is attracted to the owner um, and the way that they do business, if that aligns with the way that you do business, then it's easier to keep those customers on board um, longer and you know get that transition. So, so did they become your employees um, or
1: did in those situations, do they walk away from the business? Like how did that play in- out?
3: Most so one of them we kept the facility open and there was about 25 employees and we kept it open for three years until we moved into our bigger facility. Then we combined both under one roof. Um, They were about four and a half hours apart so none of the employees stayed on after that. Uh, We you know helped them you know find new positions and things and other other shops around the area. Um, Other ones um a lot of them were smaller where it was a person retiring or they were just getting tired and getting out of the business Where it was like a one to three person shop so is basically they were just closing down and getting out of the business wow how do you
0: value those businesses is it like ebitda times one and a half or how does that work
3: they're all very different so you put a little bit on equipment inventory um and then Really look at the top fifty clients, and what like their average order amount is, what their um, annual spend is, and value it really on those because you're going to lose, especially if unless they're located in the exact same town, because um, some of them we've acquired have been in other states, and unless it's like in your same town, like you're going to lose some of those smaller accounts, like you know Joe's Lawn Care and whatever lines club and things like that, because like, they just want to be local and true to, you know, whoever their the guy is down the street on the corner. So they're not, they might not go or stay with a new company that's, you know, across the state or a couple States away.
0: Is 50% a, a safe number to say you're going to lose off the of business revenue wise from, from this transition?
3: Yes. Yeah, is for sure. I mean, or over or yeah, or right about it. Right. Cause if you look and that's why we, we only look at the top, you know, the top um twenty to thirty percent or the top twenty to fifty customers, because that's where like the meat is of of most of the revenue anyway. So if you can keep the majority of the revenue from those top clients, um depending on the size of the company, it might be the top fifty, it might be the top one hundred like that's where that's what you're acquiring those are the long those are what i call relationship clients that are you know it might be a bank or an insurance company or um a franchise or something that's got multiple locations lumber yard something like that where those clients have been with that company for you know 10 or 15 years and they're going to continue to they value that relationship Um, versus a transactional client. And a transactional client is a bachelorette party, a one-time event, um, grandma coming in and getting whatever, you know, those types of things. So you're going to lose the transactional clients that are just like maybe once a year, once every three years, once every five years. Um, But you want to keep the ones that are relationship-based where they're ordering, you know, on a monthly or quarterly basis. So like,
1: Tom, you talk a lot about the type of customers, you know, do you guys do something different or special at Envision to really analyze your customers, whether that's like using a CRM or, you know, every month actually looking through who are repeat customers? Like are there tangibles that your sales team does? Because it sounds like you guys are very laser focused on that customer type and and that's what fuels you.
3: Right now we're working on dialing in. So it used to be, you know, a big net of doing anything and everything for everyone. And so now we're dialing in of, you know, who are our top five, you know, target markets um, and really focusing on that top, you know, top tier of who are our top 100 clients. Because if you lose a client that's doing $100,000 with you a year, even 50, It takes a ton of small, one-time, transactional, you know, two to three hundred dollars orders to make up for that one client. Totally. So, you know, focusing on those long-term clients that are bringing in a lot of continual revenue is really a big focus.
0: That's interesting. You talk about shaving off the bottom, though. Um, How do you really plan on doing that? I think I think people want to, but in practice it's a little bit tricky. I mean, it is money and, you know, people talk about raising prices to try to help shave it off or make it profitable. What is your strategy?
3: I, right now it's raising prices on the bottom. So, you know, raising price on the bottom until it is profitable. Like sometimes I think in our heads, we negotiate against ourselves and think like, Oh my gosh, I don't, I don't think they would pay that. Or,
0: yeah, i don't know if i can charge
3: that but really Ugh. the value is there like we need to do that and i look at it in other industries so if you think about um the big concrete company that's like in your city like they're doing the highways and they're doing like the parking lots and stuff at the universities and things like that like if you call that concrete company it's like hey um I need a, a little sidewalk done in front of my house for my driveway to my front door. Can you guys get me a quote on that and come out and do that? Like most are just going to say no, like that's like they just can't afford to do that because it, it's costing me that too much. Or if they were, they'd be like, all right, for that little sidewalk, that 10 feet of sidewalk is going to be like 10 grand, right? Like it's gotta be enough to make it worth for their crew to do that because that's taking their crew away from resources that, they could be doing on a multi-million dollar project. Now the same works for t-shirts, right? So the time and resources of your salesperson, your art department, your purchasing and receiving of doing a six-piece order um, takes away all the resources from the opportunity to potentially do a five hundred or a thousand piece order. And it's the same amount of time of entering that paperwork and collecting the money and doing the ordering uh, on the six piece orders is on the thousand piece order. So then, you know, let's
1: talk a little Preach. bit about, about 1-800-T-shirts because that's kind of a custom ink style model of, of of really being out there. You know, there's a How I Built This on uh, 1-800-Got-Junk. That's an amazing podcast. Um, kind of sounds like you're trying to do something like that a little bit. Talk to us about 1-800-T-shirts because we've been
3: hearing about it, seeing you with it. It's always yeah. in your backgrounds.
0: Yeah. And how'd you get it, too?
3: So so we're working on um, launching it. It's kind of a slow launch. You see the co-branding um, right now with Envision. Uh, so right now we're gonna be doing a rollout of a Shopify store, full e-commerce, and hopefully getting out here before the fourth quarter is the goal. And yeah, kind of just blowing some things up from there. So, right now, you know we're basically just a uh, landing page and you know, capturing leads and things like that. But once we get the e-commerce up, um, that's kind of our next next phase of scaling up. Um, how did we acquire it? Um, so that's that was a five year process. And so Frank Newton with Newton screen printing, he had owned it for i believe 40 years
0: frank and, um, the visionary
3: <laughs> yeah so he he had owned the domain and the phone number for 40 years but they always operated as newton screen printing so they never used um it as a brand or a marketing um side of the business it would just happen to be their 800 number that they used and you know i see this as a marketing person and totally was like oh my god this is the best marketing real estate in the industry. And so I reached out to Frank in 2015 and I email I I still have the email. I emailed him 2015 and said, hey, I'm interested in acquiring your domain, phone number, business, whatever it is, um, are you interested in talking about that? And he emailed me back and said, not at this moment, I'm gonna retire in 2020. And it'll be you know for sale at that point.
0: Set the reminder.
3: <laughs> so no it was not set the reminder. It was build the relationship. So ah, from that smart. point, um, basically every six months from 2015 until last year, um, I reached out, uh, whether it was sending them uh, something in the mail, a letter, giving them a phone call, shooting them an email, touching base, and, you know, building that relationship, learning more about their business, learning more about their customer base, and um, just building some trust and everything with them. So, when 2020 came along um you know frank is like ready to retire and i'm like holy crap we're going through a pandemic um but we'd planned this for so long that the wheels were still in motion to do the acquisition so part of that was um through building that relationship over a five-year period i was first in line you know for it um it wasn't you know publicly offered up there for sale where you know, the custom banks and some of these other big brands of the world that have a lot of venture capital behind it, they could have snapped this up in a heartbeat and it would have been a line item on their marketing budget. Like it wouldn't even been a, a blip on the radar for them. Um, so we we're very fortunate to be able to, you know, make that acquisition and work with them. And, you know, now we've, you know, integrated all their customers into, you know, You know our sales team and things like that, and just continue to move it forward.
0: What did it cost? I think that's the burning question.
3: Um, probably not as much as you think. I mean, it was a sizable investment, I'll say that. But um, you know, I think it was it was a win win for both.
0: Is the future then phone? Is that like why there's such a big push of having the name be 100? 1-800 t-shirts like you you really think that so many more people are gonna be on the phone and it's gonna build customer service i mean we feel very strongly about phone but i'm curious on your thoughts
3: um i don't know if it's as much as like the future of being phone but i think just the brand recognition you know you see 1-800 flowers 1-800 got junk and they've built great brands around that and so we're looking at some things that we can do to mimic um, what they're doing. Um, we've looked at you know, the possibilities of adding you know, kind of a larger network of um, licensees under the 1-800-T-shirt brand, similar to like 1-800-Flowers, where they've got local flower shops throughout the United States that use the 1-800-Flowers number. Um, could we do a similar model with 1-800-T-shirts with um, partnering with shops from throughout the United States to give it a local feel, but then much more on a larger national scale when it comes to marketing and promoting.
0: You guys received the Inc. Five Thousand Award. I know you were uh, pushing on it a bunch, Stephen. You guys did too. We, um, I guess, we're not supposed to talk fill about out the it. Application. No, <clears throat> we we just did too because I needed help hiring, and I think it helps legitimize the brand. And so we, we did it as well and just qualified. Um, what was your guys' thoughts behind that? Is that something more people should do to help it? Is it a hiring thing? Is it just a customer, you know, social proof thing?
3: I think it, it definitely helps, uh, social proof. It helps with hiring. Um, I think for the team, you know, it, it's kind of a, you know, what is our Super Bowl trophy or how do we how do we get to the finish line type of thing? Um, so it definitely helps on that and it, it helps to set a goal. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, from um, Inc Magazine, which is a publishing company. So they want eyeballs and once you win the award, you realize they wanna sell you like the license and the rights to use that name and to promote it and everything else. So it's kind of like the Guinness Book of World Records, like there's a publishing company behind it and they want PR, they want publicity and getting that ink magazine, the ink name out there with these businesses, like is just as much a promotion for their company and their brand as it is for for yours. So, um, you know, if you see the back end of it, there's stuff that goes along with it, but it's highly prestigious. If you look at the number of other businesses that you know you're surrounded with in there and it kind of is the who's who of like what businesses are hot right now who's growing a ton type of thing so um i think that's absolutely phenomenal and then the we went to the conference in 2019 and super inspirational to be around other entrepreneurs and business owners that are just really scaling things up and growing their businesses and they had an amazing track of speakers and you know people that you can meet and stuff like that so that was a phenomenal experience and we did it three years in a row last year we were down in 2020 but we're shooting up pretty high this year so i'm hoping uh next year we make the list again and uh we'll keep we'll keep applying
1: yeah and it's it's one of those things where if you're going to do it you have to lean into it you know kind of like you're saying is is you can you can Probably get it, and there's certain revenues you have to hit and things like that. But after that, yeah, there's some pay to play for sure. I mean, it's not cheap to go to these conferences, they don't just fly you down there, um, even to use their like marks and stuff. It costs money, but if you use it the right way, you can flex with it for sure. And if you can get one or two orders while you're down there at the conference and make a couple contacts, you pay for the trip. Um, you know, we did it, and I think I did it too early. And then I got scared by all the other stuff that came after it. And they're like, we want you to pay for this and this and this. I'm like, what the heck? Um, But, you know, like, Tom, you spend a lot of time, you know, networking at conferences, in industry, out of industry. You know, I guess, like, when did that light bulb go off for you that that's a huge part of you, at least from what I see?
3: So that was a huge game changer in our business. And I think that was probably around like year seven. So year seven or eight into the business right now we're at year 16. So about the halfway point um, of starting. And it was when like I was in my office and I'm like, and I'm looking at my competitors and stuff like that. And I'm like, all right, I'm doing the artwork. I'm doing a lot of like stuff here behind the computer. I'm back on the press like I need to get out of the office and meet people, whether that's locally at chamber events and other like networking events or just being like present in the community, volunteering, being on boards, going to festivals, whatever it is, Um, and then even beyond that, like traveling and seeing what others are doing and making some of these connections uh, face-to-face and getting out of like the shop in, like once I started doing that I was like I I had this mindset like oh my gosh like how are things gonna keep going or is that gonna hurt the business but the moment I did like everything started taking off because as you know like in this industry word of mouth is so valuable and so big and then you know as you make those connections and you you meet some it's it's amazing like you meet somebody in you know I travel to Arizona or somewhere and I meet somebody at a bar at the airport or at the convention or wherever. And a month later, we're doing t-shirts for them. And then the next thing I know, like we send them the shirts and then they tell their friend about it or somebody sees them and like that spider web that like spawns out from that, that ripple effect is just unbelievable. So like that has been a huge part of our growth. And we joke about like, um, Kevin Baumgart spent some time
1: scripting and working with my team. I think Tommy spent some time with you and he goes, you guys are in a weird industry because sales just come to you. He's (laughs) like, you're so fortunate. And it's like, well, we are our best salespeople, you know? Like, I think you look at some of these shops and how they got there and they look back and they're like, they just became like butterflies. Um, And I think that goes to show, you know, if you wanna grow your sales, there's not a magic pill that you take or a Facebook ad that you run but i think it's truly like getting out there and stepping away from your shop. I think, you know, you obviously run screen print marketing and there's a lot of hacks and things that you can do, but at the end of the day, you know, like being present, it just sounds like you are everywhere and that's why you're able to be successful at what you do. And i think that's that's awesome. Um, Bruce, what about you? Cuz you uh, you didn't go to trade shows for a minute. And then you started- I was
0: anti trade show actually for a minute <laughs> to be more accurate. <laughs> No, nothing against uh, the MBM and Impressions folks. Thank you guys so much for the great booth positioning. Um, But, uh, yeah, no, they're just so expensive. And as a small company, you know, it's eight grand a show for a 10 by 10 booth. All in, travel, hotel, booth, uh, Wi-Fi, rugs, electric, so on, so on. Um, Sparkling water. And, uh, (laughs) but... I figured, you know, we're in the age of the Internet. Why can't I just advertise online or email or so on, so on? And, you know, I couldn't be more wrong. I, I mean, people people like doing business with you, A, because 50% is because you could just do the service that they're looking for. And then the rest is because they just like you and working with you. Um, and, you know, you, you treat them like uh, you listen to them and you're there for them and you're the expert, right? Uh and uh, the more I think that any company can help foster that, the better. Because honestly, the bar is low for that. Like the, I mean, I feel like you probably deal with a company or a store or anything that has terrible customer service almost every week. And maybe it's not terrible. I shouldn't say that. But it's okay. Like the bar is so low that just by making somebody feel special, I don't even... Like a water bottle when they walk in or, or anything like that. Um, really, just creates a memory in their head and, and creates that special bond. Relati- so,
1: relationships are back. Can't swipe right on sales.
2: No, um, the,
0: the the bots, the chat bots, the it's like just pick up the phone. I the, the amount of times we've honestly gotten a sale because someone was looking for shop management software and we just were there on the phone to answer. Um,
1: no, people want it, to talk to people. It's insane. People, people want to talk yeah. to people. Tom, something I want to ask you about. Um, there's this concept in business called like finite and infinite games. Basically, um, you know, gratification in business. Being a long distance runner, um, and and you also playing games in business that take a long time to play out. One eight hundred t shirts is happened twenty fifteen, and you're still saying like it's still a work in progress. It sounds like you're not like instant gratification or winning tomorrow is not your priority. Um, and I think that goes to show on all the irons that you have in the fire. How, how do you measure like the success of all the different things you have going on, knowing that there's a very long game to everything you play?
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's looking at the long term, like, and that's where I said with our customers, it's relationship based and not transactional. So it is what is in it for the long haul. Um, you know, we want this customer for life. We're not gonna go anywhere tomorrow in any of the business. Like the real estate um, stuff that we're doing, uh, some of these leases are 10 or 20 years. Like that is a long time um, that we know like we're gonna be in that project for. So it's always looking like at the future, looking long-term and not, you know, what's going on tomorrow or the next day. But also with that, like we're looking and saying, like, okay, I've got two kids now that are three years old and five years old. Like, how does this look? And so some of our decisions now are like, how does this impact um, on the family side of things? And you know, when they're in high school or when they're in middle school, what we do now, how is that going to impact um, those ages and what we're doing and what I'm doing in business um, at that time in their life as well. So. You know, I think it kind of comes and goes in seasons and, you know, it's looking, but then also looking down the road three years, five years, 10 years and saying, okay, what does that look like? And if we keep doing what we're currently doing, is that going to change the trajectory of where things are down the road or what like big changes or what do we need to shift and do differently? So it aligns with everything else as we keep moving forward.
1: And I think that's, there, there's some irony there. There was like a conversation about real estate in one of the groups and like, should I buy my building? And I think it might've been you or someone that said like, think about 10 years from now when your building's paid off, you know, or you're going to have something that you can sell. And I think as small business owners, when we get into the shop, we're like, how do I get profitable this year? How do I grow to this much? And I think in your eyes, you're looking at it as I'm throwing a lot of darts. What's going what's gonna to be good 10 years down the line? Um, that's going to give me, you know, a little wealth from here and here and here. And I think that's a very mature and hard thing to do in business, especially me being younger. Um, and, and we, you know, as much as we give you shit for all the different things we do, that's a pretty hard mental game to play. Um, and I think if, if shops are listening to that, that's something they should take away from Tom is like, he plays long games. It's not about tomorrow, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, it's the the same as training and running a hundred mile race. So like, if you decide you're going to do that, you're not just going to go out tomorrow and do it, you know, like it's going to take a long time to train and get to that end like gratification um, and a lot of work to get there. And people always ask, like, how do you get to like, how do you run a hundred miles? I'm like just one mile at a time. I start off my training. Like, I go out and run two miles and then the next day I run three and then like you keep building up over the course of that whole training period and the same goes in business. They're like, how do you get, you know, four automatics and 50 heads of embroidery and like, you know, all this stuff in business? I'm like, well, I started off with a manual press and, you know, and you keep progressing like one t-shirt at a time, like one or like you just keep adding on. And so you can't look at and say like, oh my God. And I see this a lot, like a lot of small printers who um, who are like, how do I get this 10,000 or 20,000 piece order? And I remember our first one, it was an absolute nightmare. And even now, like with the logistics we have, it's a lot of work and it takes, it. those like aren't even fun orders to do um, anymore. And so it's always like like, Don't try to shoot for that finish line like too early. You're going to get there, but it takes a process and it takes a time. um, And know that you got to put in the reps and the work and you'll get to that finish line and you have to find little rewards along the way. It's awesome.
0: Boom.
1: Well, Tom, Tom this is awesome. This is awesome. (laughs) This is action packed. I really, really enjoyed it today. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat. This will be an awesome episode
3: when it drops. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you.
0: Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the Pronounces Podcast. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you, guys, for listening. Thank you, Tom. Have a good one.
1: See ya.